Computer, initialize Holosuite. Holosuite Media. Welcome back to The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast. The time has finally come, and this week we will be taking our first deep dive into an episode of Enterprise. And there is no better place to begin than with the premiere episode, Broken Bow. My name is Carl West, and I am joined by my co-host, Chris Hill. Chris, how are you? Doing real good. Uh, got a couple things done today other than watching Star Trek Enterprise, so it was a good day. So was mine, actually. Did my food shopping. I got the oil changed in my car. Before we begin, for our listeners, don't forget to hit that subscribe button if you want to ensure that you never miss an episode of this podcast. And if you have time, please leave us a five-star review on iTunes. It makes all the difference to us. Also, we're not going to hold back on the spoilers as we discuss this episode. So if you haven't watched the entire run of Star Trek Enterprise, consider yourself warned now. I can't imagine, as we go into this, that there's going to be a whole lot of spoilers for later, but I think with a show that is, with an episode that is 19 years old, don't think Chris and I should need to worry too much about spoiling some details. Obviously, guys, for everyone listening, we're going to really break apart this episode, dissect it, but we're also aware that, you know, millions of podcasts have gone through it, each scene and spoken at length about every scene as it's happening, and there's no point us doing that. Today, we want to go a bit deeper than that. So just quick thoughts. At first, Chris, you've rewatched this episode. You've seen it before. What was your thoughts on the episode as a, as a premiere for a Star Trek show? I think it was it was one of the strongest. I mean, because at that time, you'd had only the Man Trap for the original series, Beyond the Farthest Star for the animated, Encounter at Farpoint, Emissary, and Caretaker for the, for the rest of them. This was the strongest one since Man Trap. I'm in Facebook groups, yeah. We all are. And you see people even now just say that they don't think Broken Bow is one of the best Star Trek premieres. And I'm just like, have you watched the other Star Trek premieres? This premiere, it's it's funny. Uh, it looks great. Uh, it's got, you know, it, it's got great character introductions. I'm going to say the pacing's great. It does include more action than what the previous ones had. And it's slicker, isn't it? It's just slicker than any other premiere in Star Trek, in my mind. I guess maybe Discovery was pretty slick as well, and Picard's first episode was exceptional. But, you know, Broken Bow at the time, you, I, I kind of group Enterprise with that that lot of Trek shows, and Broken Bow was the best the best premiere by mile. There's like an episode of TV or Star Trek, where would you put it? I can say definitely one that, that I need to revisit more often than what I, what I do, just because the pacing's great. It's got its quieter moments, it's got got the action scenes as well it really is just one of the better episodes of tv definitely at that time and also in star trek i would be surprised if i've watched a star trek episode more than broken bow even when i had the vhs copy you know i used to watch it all the time and i watched it the dodgy copy i had on a cd to go in in a cd-rom drive on on my old pc uh, back in the day but watching it in a tiny little box i watched that loads of times so i must not have seen any of the Star Trek as much as this one. So let's dig deeper. Let's talk character introductions. Not so much about maybe how they were looked at across the whole episode, but really the sort of first or second introductory scenes for these characters, because we were meeting this crew for the first time. First time in seven years that Star Trek had introduced a new set of characters to us. Let's start with the main one, Jonathan Archer. Not Archer as a child, but Archer as a grown adult. And the first time we see him is in the shuttle, just after the opening credits. He's in the shuttle with Trip who we'll come on to in a moment. And I guess we should look at that scene with Archer in the shuttle and then when Archer joins the scene with the Admirals and the Vulcans. So what was your first impressions of Archer from these scenes? How good a job do you think the show and the writers did of introducing Archer to us? I think they did a, did a decent job introducing Archer to us. You can see on his face that he's excited to, to see his father's work actually come to fruition. He's looking at, at, at all the all the lines and curves on, on the NX-01. He's just really in awe of it and seems anxious to, to go ahead and take her for a test spin and possibly even further to just kind of see what she's got and try to bring her home in one piece if he can. It just crossed my mind now. When Voyager is introduced to us, the pilot that is flying the uh, the shuttle 
Tom Paris in is reeling off all these statistics and pieces of information about the USS Voyager systems and all this stuff, which means nothing to me. On the Enterprise introduction, Archer's talking about making the, the colour of the paint here match this other piece of paint, and then he complains about scratching the paint. And like that, for me, summarises why I loved Enterprise from the moment it started, you know? Like, everything about it. Archer, we spoke last week, wearing caps. He had the NX-01 hat on, and they're just chilling with Trip and very relaxed conversation. I just think immediately from Archer, he's you know, he's more laid back in this scene, and you immediately know he's different from Janeway, who, if you're watching your treks in the order they were made, you'd been with Janeway five minutes before, you know? And then you're with this guy, first male captain in a number of years, and he's just so relaxed. He's so chilled. He's cool. They're trying to make him cool, aren't they? Yeah. For me, you know, he seems like the kind of guy that you could just go to a bar or a pub and have a beer with and talk sports, find out he's into water polo. And what about the uh, the second scene then? I think these two scenes, they are the introduction to Archer. We get quite a lengthy scene about Clang and what to do between the Admirals and the Vulcans. Now, hidden away in the back of this scene for the longest time is Paul, who we'll speak about in a moment. Archer comes in halfway through. I mean, Scott back just steals the scene, doesn't he? Brings the energy. He's wearing casual clothes. It looked great. He just looks so different to Janeway, you know, and, and you're making these comparisons. And he, I said last week about how I needed a, a male captain to look up to, which I hadn't had at that at that point in my life. That's no slight on Janeway at all. I was 15, I think, and I, I really needed a male inspiration. And Archer was it, like, he walks in, he's looking, he's dressed like we're dressed. You feel like Archer's in the right throughout the whole scene. You know, he's questioning why would the Vulcans want to, well, let Clang die, because that's what they're suggesting, let Clang die and take him back, because that's the Klingon way. And Archer very stubbornly is like, well, that's not that's not our way. We're not going to let someone die. There's traits there that we see from Archer throughout the whole of the show, particularly the first two seasons, where he just doesn't really accept other alien species' uh, ideas of and traditions and, and cultural beliefs. I think the first time really see him following those is Cogenitor, which we're going to talk about in, in a couple of weeks. But when you take the whole episode as a whole, Archer is displaying some of his comments he's making and his attitude is actually being guided a bit by his, well, we'll talk about this again later, but like his prejudice against Vulcans. It's the kind of thing we see nowadays where people say, look at your privileges. You know, like that whole thing we're going through right now and you wouldn't notice it unless you're looking for it. But actually, yeah, where Archer's coming from with a lot of this is just how he's prejudiced and he's looking for a reason to go at these guys again. And it's a good character flaw for Archer, which he overcomes quite quickly on it. Yeah, everything about this scene, like, I, my favourite line, and we're going to talk about favourite moments soon, but like when he asked to Paul, you know, when are we going to be ready to go into space then? She's like, well, when you um, learn to control your volatile nature. And he says, volatile? You have no idea how much I'm restraining myself from knocking you on your ass. That was a moment when I watched it the first time I was like, oh, Oh my gosh, I'm going to love this show. Still one of my favourite Trek moments ever now. I can't really think of a time where Trek has threatened that man-on-woman violence so casually. But he doesn't He doesn't care. He doesn't bat an eyelid. Yeah, it's, he's casual about it. And he's also firm with like, hey, you know, this is how I am. Deal with me. I'm sure we'll be able to work things out later on. But this is how I am right now. Absolutely. A good introduction to him? I think so, yeah. Let's look at Trip then. For his, as key a character he was almost immediately, he didn't really get much of an introduction. Uh, and he's probably got, he might have the most lines after Archer on the show, or maybe after DePaul. I think he probably was actually, probably had more dialogue than DePaul, but he didn't have much of an introduction. He was secondary in Archer's introduction scene, but we got an idea of the, the brotherhood between them. And then he is secondary in the, the next time we see him is in the engine room, when Reed and Mayweather come in. He's just there to, to confirm what Reed said about him, about like, keep your shirt on, lieutenants, and stuff like that. So yeah, he didn't really get a big introduction. When you watch it back, did you notice that? Yeah, I mean, it, it just kind of seems like he was there and then just there. <laughs> you can sort of tell he admires Archer, though, and he cares about the ship, the whole joke of the scratch and the paint. You kind of tell straight away that he's a bit mischievous. I think that's clear from his scene with Archer, but when he's in work mode, he's much more serious in the engine room. But I guess it's the same with Archer. Archer was very relaxed with him in that first scene, but then when Archer was in work mode with the, I guess they were at Starfleet Command, I can't remember, Yeah. Uh, with Clang, he was much more aggressive and serious and to the point. So I guess we kind of got an idea of how they're both different with each other. Uh, but yeah, I didn't think Trip really had a whole lot to do or say in his. Let's look at T'Pol. T'Pol, as I said, was hidden in the background in her first scene. You know, if you didn't know she was a main cast member, you may not have even really noticed her. I think she was framed like she was positioned in the back of the frames behind the other Vulcans and such. So not, not a big introduction. It wasn't until... She was saying, talking to Archer about, hey, you know, there's more than just you to think about type of thing. That she comes more into focus. Her first exchange of dialogue is when Archer threatens to knock her on, on her ass. And yeah. 
I think the second time we see her is when she comes into the ready room, uh, which I'm going to hold off on chatting about that scene, Chris, because I think there's a lot in there to dissect. I think we should talk about that a bit later. But is it safe to say that T'Pol was was introduced in the first half of this episode as like an antagonist? Yeah, more antagonist than than friend. I'm going to dare say that they did a better job establishing her as an antagonist than they did for Chakotay with Janeway. Yeah, based on what I can remember from watching Caretaker. Yeah, I watched that like a, just a couple of months ago, so it's still quite fresh in my head. But yeah, I, I really love that dynamic straight away. One introduction that really surprises me on this show, given it didn't lead to a whole lot, was Travis Mayweather. The two big scenes with him at the start, which introduce him to us and establish him, is he's with the transporter with Reed, and we're finding a bit out about him being a boomer and, and what that is. And then he's in the sweet spot. Trip comes to him, and we found out more about his background and being this boomer. And even later in the episode, you know, he's helping uh, Trip know how to fly the Sulaban ship. And you're thinking to yourself, wow, this guy's going to be an important character. And he's cool, he's different to normal Trek characters. He's going to be important, but it was almost dropped <laughs> the very next episode. And that's probably before they ever saw the character on screen. So it's not like they made the decision, like, about the acting choice. One of the things that Berman and Braga were saying on, on the commentary was that, you know, they kind of got bored with the whole Boomer thing. They wanted to make him more than just, you know, hey, Boomer. But I think if they would have stuck stuck it out a little bit more with Boomer Past and throw, threw in a few more episodes about the Boomers, it would have worked out better. Definitely. I liked Fortunate Son. I loved Horizon in season two. I mean, I watched it back now and it's quite a simple episode, but at the time I loved it. I have a strong affection for it, but... We never got a Travis episode again until the final two-parter in season four. So it was a while. So yeah, they never really um, played on that boomer history. Reed, I guess we f- we found out very quickly that he's by the book, cares about his weapons. That was a big thing with Reed very early on was him wanting to like yeah. have weapons and cause explosions and things like that. I guess an interesting thing knowing what comes later is that his relationship with Trip. He seems to have a lot of disdain for trip he doesn't like trip does he seems like they're kind of setting it up to be me more of like a a rivalry within the crew to kind of maybe cause tension later on which i'm glad they decided to kind of do away with that when they made the episode shuttle pod one do you think the initial plan was a strong friendship between reed and travis that's what i got from 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 the first episode from watching the first episode that they were going to try and pair off reed and travis's friends because they were on the alien planet with each other and watching the dances if you watch that episode, you'd think that was where they were going to go with Reed for the friendship, in my opinion. I mean, there's not much more to say, I guess, on, on Reed's introduction. Given she's a character I never had any strong opinion on, I always liked how Hoshi was introduced because, again, it was in the early stages of the episode and she was in Brazil teaching languages to her students. And it was just different. It was different for Trek. I really like that scene and she was caring. You got that she was caring. She couldn't leave her students at the last minute. But then Archer plays the tape. And that's it then, isn't it? He's dangled that carrot. She's ready to go. So what did you think of Hoshi in her introduction scene? For her introduction scene, I, I, I did enjoy it. I actually enjoyed later on in the episode where she had the back and forth with Paul and where she did kind of act like how we would act if we were just yeah. kind of thrown onto a spaceship as they're, as they're leaving. Not not really sure the feel of it and needing to get her space legs, as it were. Yeah, she has issues with the ship shaking a bit at warp when he takes her down on the planet. She's not comfortable. We see her scream when the Suliban attack the ship. The scream I always hate. We're not going to focus on any negativity at all with the show, but that scream, I think it's because it represents one of the traits that I never really liked with Hoshi. Like, you say her finding space legs was great, but sometimes, in the early days, it grated on me a little bit. And I don't know why. I don't know why. Because, you know, Linda Parks, she did a great job. I guess, as the episode went on, she started to become that Hoshi that she went from the really, like, cool, kind, interesting woman in that introductory scene. And by the end of the episode, we'd seen enough of her that, I guess, carried on in the the next episode, Fight or Flight, that were things I never quite liked. Because I was always like, come on, Hoshi, just... Just take it on the chin. Just, you know, just just go. Just go for it. You're, you're in space now. Just go for it. For whatever reason, they couldn't have T'Pol be, be the one that was, you know, the more hysterical one. So it had mm. all, all the hysteria had to be pushed onto Hoshi because she was human where T'Pol was, was a Vulcan. And they didn't really want to deal with any of the guys. Kind of, kind of playing in, into that into that whole trope. It was a trope, but I, I did like her introduction. Though I, I've got to say that. And Flox, his first scene, we can't really judge that. But how about his first scene on the Enterprise when he's in sick bay? Instead of Doctor Flox, he could have been Doctor Doolittle, <laughs> just, yeah. just because yeah. of all the animals that he liked. I, I really enjoyed the the back and forth he had with Archer. The one thing though that that kind of it was a little unsettling was, was the. The smile that he gave but it's just one of the one of those things where they were just trying to prove how alien he really was 
Yeah, and I think all the creatures and, and the things he had, it was so different, wasn't it? Mm-hmm. You see more of that throughout the show. And I kind of love the, was it when Archer hands him the, almost like the birdcage thing, and he hands it over and then it shakes and you just see Archer, his reaction to it. Like, I, I remember that even before I rewatched the episode, you know, I, I still can visualize that scene in my head. I just, because I've watched this show so many times. And there was a lot of pressure on the Doctor because, yeah, okay, we had Bones in the original series, big character. Crusher wasn't a big character in the sense of a big personality that would steal the show. Bashir, not really as well, still muted part of an ensemble. But the EMH on Voyager was a big, big character. He's one of the triumvirate of that show, I guess, really, with him, him, Janeway, and Seven. One of the few that had a character arc that you could see the progression of. So I guess there was a lot of pressure on Flocks. You know, how do we make this Doctor interesting? When that first scene on the Enterprise with him and Archer, you you knew he was different. No copy and paste. I didn't get a feeling with any of these character introductions that they were just ticking a box for, that's a helmsman. Okay, he eventually became that tick box one, but that's a helmsman, that's a technical officer. They were all different. They all had little cute things about them that they took time to establish. Let's talk about one of the biggest introductions then, which was the NX-01. I want to talk about her launch. I'm going to say this first. They reused this clip, I think, three more times on the show. I think it's three of Enterprise leaving leaving Space Dock. I think they even kept the astronauts in the shot the next time they used it, which was the Expanse. And they used it again in, was it, the, was it called The Augments? I think it was called, I can't remember the name of that episode. And they took out the astronauts on that shot, I think. Did they use the same, no, they didn't use it for the... Um, the NX-02, did they? I can't no, remember. I don't think so. I think we saw it again anyway at some point. But this first time, man, with the music, Archer's theme it's called, and the intercutting with Cochrane's speech and the visuals of it, it's the first time for a show that they'd used a CGI model of the ship for the entire duration of the show. Voyager made the switch during its run. It's the first time I think we ever get a proper, clear look at every part of the ship. The energy of that scene just feels special, doesn't it? I'd say that launch, probably one of the better scenes in, in, in Star Trek. It is very, very much like when you see the Enterprise refit in motion picture for the yeah, first time, yeah. but it is more, more compact, not as much. Not as long. <laughs> yes, not, not as long. And, yeah. and the, way, the way that they put in uh, Archer's theme as they were taken off, that was just chef's kiss right there. Uh, which is a beautiful piece of music. And we're going to talk the Enterprise music in a future show, but I love Archer's theme. I'm in love with it. Interestingly, not the closing theme on this episode, though, but it is for the rest of the show, uh, which I should say, actually, we skipped the credits. Talk about the credits. Uh, but, well, let's talk about them now, I guess. The opening credits, they cause a controversy. I guess we'll dissect the song a bit more in, a, in our future music episode. But what do you think of the opening credits and the song and the, and the visuals? With the song and the visuals, I think as the, the Berman era went on, it got better. Like Voyager's theme with, with its visuals and Enterprise's theme with its visuals are 1 and 1A one for me with that era. It just kind of depends on which one I've seen more recently, which one's 1 and which one's 1A. One but, but like with, with, with showing basically Earth's progression from, from, you know, wooden ships on the ocean to flying out into space. And actually when, when they made that sequence... We hadn't launched the uh, Mars rover yet. They're my favorite opening credits, I think. Oh, no, definitely of all the the first five shows, not including animated series in that number. It's funny, like, they're ahead of the time for me. If you put those opening credits on a show now, they would fit in perfectly. They'd be winning awards, and obviously Discovery and Picard have been very similar. It's not been flybys of the ships or, or anything like that. So this was like the first one that had these really interesting opening credits uh, where there's a lot going on. And I love the the story in it of humanity's journey and like the visuals are stunning. You can't you can't doubt the visuals. The the music, I love the song. I'm going to say it. I love I love Faith of the Heart. My partner Katie, she loved it. She was singing it today in the kitchen because obviously she knew I was recording and I hear I caught her singing it by the cooker while she was making dinner for us. My daughter, who's 2, she sings some of it and she'd wave goodbye to the ship when it flies off and she goes she just goes bye-bye and just waves at it. And even when she sings a song now, she waves at the end. Even if we're not watching it, she's just singing it and you know, she can't even speak properly. I love it. We'll talk about it I guess the newer version later on. I wasn't such a fan of it after the change. When they changed the tempo, it just kind of changed things a little too much. I never felt that the opening credits ever damaged the pace of the show. I know some people always thought, oh, you're getting this action bit, but then it suddenly goes to this song. I was like, no, I was ready. This song used to psych me up. I was like, yeah, let's get out there. What are we going to explore this week? It worked for me. So I liked it. And it really blew me away the first time because Trek hadn't done anything like that. So I was like, wow. Just been instrumentals up, up until that. Yeah. Let's talk favorite scenes. And I guess there's going to be loads. We're going to talk about favorite moments later. So there might be some crossover between between the two now. I've got a bit of an extensive list of favorite scenes. I honestly could have done this podcast without even watching the episode again. Because I still remember every single scene of the show and almost every line of dialogue. 
But for you first, what's one of your favorite scenes in the episode? For me, it's actually a collection of scenes. It's all the, the flashbacks we get of, of oh, Archer right. as a kid with his dad and just sort of, you know, establishes how, how Archer was raised. In some of those scenes, I'm going to say something that we're going to go a little more in depth in is, you know, how Archer kind of feels or is, is upset because he feels like that the Vulcans are holding him back and that turns into a prejudice that we see later on. And it's not so much out of malice that it happens, it's out of frustration. <laughs> that scene with the admirals and the Vulcans and when Archer comes in, everything about it, I was like, oh my god, I can't wait to watch the rest of this episode. Because it was so different. And again, my journey going into this episode was different to yours, because obviously you watched the original series, then went into this, and then the other shows. But I was coming off Voyager, that, as we discussed previously, I'd become a little bit distant from in its last season. This was me ready to throw myself back into a new Trek show. Yeah, this was going to be my Trek. And in that scene, I was like, oh my god, this is so different. I love it. Uh, this is not more of the same. And that scene, everything about it, the aggressiveness from Archer, the passion, the interesting relationship between the Vulcans and Starfleet in this scene. Uh, you got another one? Um, I'm going to say another one for me would actually be the interaction between Archer and Silic there in, in Future Guy's chamber. The visuals are a little funky, but you kind of understand why they are with the whole temporal Cold War and anomaly type situation there. And in that scene, you see, you know, Archer's, not going to take any any shit from anyone. I love the face-off between Archer and T'Pol in his ready room, and it comes just after they've lost Clang. He's got Hoshi going off doing this, I think Reed's going off doing that, and then T'Pol is like, the mission's over. You've lost Clang, we need, we need to turn back, we need to let Starfleet know. Don't worry, the Vulcans aren't going to judge you for it, because how are you meant to stop this? When he says to her, he's like, in my ready room. And they go in there and it suddenly goes from wide shots to close on their faces. The room is darkly lit behind Archer's head. The aggression that was in that scene. And, I, you know, I said earlier about how I just think they did it better than Janeway and Chakotay. And T'Pol was an ass to him. And he was being pretty forceful with her. And it was just like, wow, there's sparks flying, you know. And there's like, there's real, like, hatred. And she looks down her nose at him. And he's the captain, you know, and, and he hates her. How are they going to get past this and, and work together? Because you know that's coming, because it's Star Trek. So you know it was in the 19th minute when the Enterprise launched? So we were almost 25% of the way through the episode before the ship launched. They spent good time building characters, didn't they, before that? They took the time, and it flies by. I paused the TV at that exact moment, because that's when Katie came in to ask me if I wanted a coffee. And I paused it, and I was like, oh, look, the Enterprise is launching. And her eyes lit up, because she loves this show, even though like she was not a Trekkie before Discovery at all. And I looked at it, I was like, oh my god, 19 minutes. I, I feel like I've only been watching it for five. A sign of a good episode of TV and a good film is it ends too soon. You don't realize how long it's been going on for. If they would have been able to do their original plan of having, you know, at least the first couple episodes on Earth, I'm going to say, do you think it would have been, you know, 25% of the way into the into the season before we saw the launcher? Because we said last week, didn't we, that we don't think they could have done a whole season based on Earth. So yeah, I think maybe... 25%. What would that have been? Um, 12, about six episodes in? Or close? No. Yeah, I'm not doing good maths there. Am I thinking about seven or eight episodes in here? For 25% with... Because I think they were at 22 episodes at this 26, point. 26, yeah. 26. Oh, 26? Okay. Yeah. Okay, so then yeah, yeah, it probably would be closer to seven or eight. I guess we got an idea of what the show might have been in those, those first 19 minutes. We might not have met some of the characters right away. Hoshi could have been a, a different episode, you know, and trying to get her in, uh, on board. But I love those first 19 minutes. Let's go back to the second scene of the episode. Some people still have issues about the first contact with the Klingon. Some fans still com still complain 20 years later. But we have a Klingon in the second scene running through this cornfield. Now, we know the Klingons. We're Trek fans. We know the Klingons. We know they're one of the strongest, most scariest bad guys for, for the Federation later on, centuries later. What people don't seem to give credit to is that the show actually shows us straight away a Klingon running away from the new big bad. This Klingon is running, looks afraid for his life from these two aliens we've never seen before. That, for me, sets up the Suluban so well straight away. I know they get blown up very quickly and we see them slither under the door and you're like, what the hell is going on? Because we've never really seen anything like that, I guess, except for like a changeling. Are these guys changelings or what? Exactly. You don't know anything, do you? Did you take it that way? Like that introduction, it was them showing us that even the Klingons are afraid of these guys? To, to me, yeah, because um, if you kind of look back at TNG, whenever Worf got defeated, it was to say that, hey, you know, this guy's someone you should take seriously because yeah. they beat up Worf. And even Clang had to trick him into that silo, get out and blow it up. You could say it's smart, but it almost seems a little cowardly for a Klingon as a way to defeat your opponent. You beat them properly, not not lure them in and blow them up whilst running away yourself. The Sudan as a whole, we, I guess we find out in this episode about their genetic modifications, which um, Flocks uh, just loved. We met, oh gosh, her name's escaped me now. Saren? Uh, 
Yeah, so we meet her and we find out straight away that not all Suleban are bad, which was important because we spoke last week about 9-11 and everyone was making out that every person who may be Islamic was evil and it was important, I guess, in Enterprise. They'd already filmed it, but it was important for them to say, look, the bad ones are the exception. What did you make of the Suleban as a, as a threat? Compare them to the Kazon, I guess, and how the Kazon were introduced to us in the first episode of Voyager. I would say the Suleban were introduced a little better than the Kazon. What did you think of, like, Future Guy? Really, it was... A, it. It's an interesting concept and premise. The bad thing is, you know, we never really got a payoff. I mean, there there was rumors that it was actually supposed to be Archer from the future. Yeah, so let's break this down. That that comes from Brandon Bragger. Brandon Bragger says the plan would have been Archer to be revealed as future guy. I don't believe him. I don't think anything in the show ever suggested it was Archer. It wouldn't make sense. Well, I guess that's why Brandon Bragger probably would have done it. In the first episode, who do you think it could be? I just thought it was some guy from the future. I thought it was Saval because his voice is so similar. Okay. So I always thought it was going to be him during that first episode. Cold front, I still thought it. By the end of the season, I didn't. I didn't know who it was going to be and we never we never found out. I'd love them to revisit Star Trek, but I just don't think it's ever going to be on anyone's list of priorities. They are making short treks now, so... Don't get me started, man. Like, I'm foolishly holding on to hope that short treks is going to give me some closure on Enterprise that we never got. See, now you've said it. It gets my mind racing. With CBS All Access here in the States, they can finally do a Romulan war on screen. Here's my hope that with Enterprise's newfound popularity, assuming it's being watched on CBS All Access in America, if that's how people are watching it, they all see this data. That's what it's all about. That's one of the reasons people want these streaming services is because they can they can use the information to tailor their content to that. It wasn't just the online love for Pike that got us Strange New Worlds. You know, that was probably the data telling us it. And and, and the short tracks too. If they're seeing a spike in Enterprise, because we know it's, get, it's getting watched more by people during lockdown and things like that. We know 2020 has been a great year for the show. If they're seeing that on there, they might be saying, you know what, we need to cash in on this a bit. Give Alex Kurtzman a call and say, look, Alex, we'd, we'd love to do a short track on anything from Enterprise. Put an idea together and we'll approach the cast member. And you can do it so cheap. You know, it could be Archer in his office as president of the Federation. You know, it could be something so short. Trip could walk into his office and be like, hey, we've got this new technology that we're kind of trying to toy with here that, that's like a hollow imager type of thing. Oh, by the way, I've joined Section 31, so we have to <laughs> fake my death. That would explain what we'll be talking about in our next episode with These Are the Voyage. Yeah, make, uh, make the books canon. Do you think the show, in the grand scheme of things, paid it off with the Suleban? After the Suleban, I, I do believe that was more or less successfully closed there at the beginning of the fourth season. However, the Temporal Cold War and Future Guy, I, I still think there was a few threads they could have pulled on. One thing I loved when I rewatched season four recently was you had that whole season of the Zindi and then first episode back, Suleban again. You know, and it's like, oh, oh my God, we're back to normal. I, I mean, I love season three. It's one of my favorite seasons. But it was like, oh my God, yeah, I forgot all about these guys. And, and they're like the main bad guys of the show. And I would have loved to have seen them a bit more after... We never saw the fallout for them of Future Guy, you know, and I know they said that the Temple Cold War never, never happened, but it did. I guess it's one of those paradoxes. Yeah. Timey-wimey, as Doctor Who says. Timey-wimey stuff. To quote Miles O'Brien, I hate temporal mechanics. I love the makeup. I remember seeing some documentaries about the detail that had to go into doing their makeup. I thought visually they were just really interesting. Deceptively complex is, I think, what the term Berman and Braga used for the design. They looked different when they came back in season four. There was budget cuts on the show, obviously, but I feel like it wasn't quite as detailed. I love the eyes. Those eyes looked incredible. You know, when Flox opens the eye and you see like the pupil with those dots around it. Six little dots around, oh, around the normal-sized pupil. The skin, oh, it always always went through me. I think part of it's because, you know, I didn't know about this even existing until like two years ago. There was a picture going around of, I think it started because of American Horror Story, had a poster which showed like all the little holes in someone's skin, I think. Oh, yeah, yeah. And it freaks people out. It's got a name. I can't remember it. And maybe the listeners will let us know. I realized then that I've got that thing as well. I looked at it. I was like, oh, God, I think I get a little bit of that with the Suleban in the first two seasons. Just like their skin, because it's got all those little sort of indents where the black dots are on them. I think what they were trying to do, too, was in, in kind of play on our emotions and aversions towards reptiles with that. Yeah. It does look reptilian. What do you think about their ship design? With, with the Helix, I, I liked how they, they combined all their pods together to, in essence, form it around a central core. Now, the ones that were shooting out the depth charges, those ones, to me, they looked a little like the, the, the Tholian ships that we see, as opposed to just being a normal, or like a normal, totally alien design, like their pods and, and Helix together. The show, it makes a point in a few scenes of this supposed naivety of humans. Uh, we first see it in... Seems Archer and the Admirals, Saval is saying about how let's take him back dead. 
And Archer's like, well, he's not, he's, he's not dead. And he goes into Flocks and say, you know, is he going to die? And we found out he's not. And he's like, he doesn't understand. And Saval's like, well, that's the Klingon way. It'd be more honorable for him to die. And we had that uh, and him just not understanding it. We had mostly, I guess, the stuff with Trip on Rigel 10 where, I mean, it looks like there's a sex thing or some kind of, I don't know if it was a, a suggestion, rape or something. Trip walks back to the door first and sees something, but... He hears something. To me, I, th- I thought it was more of attack as opposed to okay. something yeah. sexual just because of the scream. Yeah, and yeah, the kid, and that's obviously he's shouting at the mum, and Paul corrects him, and and she points out about his naivety and humans. She says humans will have to if they're gonna be out here, you need to know when to interfere and when not to. And that's alluding again, I guess, to the prime directive. Eventually, it was refreshing to see humans kind of clueless as to what's out there. Yeah, to me, I, I enjoyed that, and that's one of the things that that makes Enterprise one of my favorite series. Is it something that I could see happening within the next fifty years? Yeah, we'd all look at that kid struggling for air and the mum doing that and we'd be like what, what, what are you doing and we're thinking that as a viewer and turns out we're all wrong and as the episode goes on we realize with DePaul that she knows a lot more than we know and we need to start listening to her interesting subject i'd like to discuss with you is the i would say the racist undertones in how archer and trip in particular deal with DePaul. because one of my favorite scenes i think it's DePaul's second scene it's the first scene with the three together in the ready room and they talk about how uh, she doesn't like the smell of porthos and Archer is like, oh, yeah, that's right. Vulcans have a heightened sense of smell. And he's almost enjoying it and trips joking. There's little looks to each other. They're bullying her, aren't they? A little bit, yeah. It's one of those where I think they're, they're trying to see if they can provoke her into emotion. Yeah. She, she's not really having any of it. And she's standing her ground. And poor Porthos, he just wants to be petted. Maybe I'm looking too much into it just because of what's been going on in the world recently. But when I've watched that episode numerous times before, I've always been on the side of, of Trip and Archer and laughing with them. The fact that, yeah, they're trying to goad her and, and stuff like that. But I guess with what's been going on in the world now, I kind of watched the scene. Again, one of my favorite scenes, though. Mm-hmm. But I kind of watched it and felt a little uncomfortable. The way they're treating her, if we saw that in the real world now, with we wouldn't have an alien. We'd, let's just call it someone of a, a, a different skin color. Then we'd be calling that racist. I can say it'd be the same thing with what, you know, McCoy did with Spock all throughout the original series and even into some of the movies and what Pulaski did with Data in season two of TNG. Don't you think it's interesting, though, that the show is pitching us to be on the side of of Archer and Trip in that scene, I think? That just kind of goes to show you how how we've even changed in the last 20 years. Because I think if Broken Bow was made today, that, that scene would probably still be in, but it'd be framed slightly different. I was going to ask you that. That was going to be my question. It was going to be, do you think that scene would be made now? We'd have something similar. Some of the words would, would, would be changed up, but there'd still be the, the tone of like, hey, you know, we still need to get past our prejudices at this point, but saying that we still need to get past our prejudices, but also saying, hey, we can still slip back into that very easily. I'm sure as enlightened as Trek is, there's always a few moments, isn't there, throughout its history where you watch a scene and you think, oh, that's not quite as an enlightened behavior as you'd expect. I felt slightly uncomfortable with it. I thought we had to talk about it. I thought it can't just be me seeing this now in 2020 vision. You know, everything has made me look at myself over the last couple of years and just as to how I behave or maybe things are different to how I thought I saw them. And that applies to to this scene. I, I suddenly saw a different scene to what I saw. Yeah, I was like, God, if I just took this out and put this in a normal drama or in the real world, it just wouldn't work. Archer and Trip were jerks. They were jerks in that scene, and we can laugh it off now, I guess, because we know where it goes and things like that, but it's, it's, it's uncomfortable viewing uh, with, with 2020 hindsight. What about the portrayal of sex, then? Because Enterprise was the sexed-up Star Trek. To me, that seems like it was something that UPN was pushing. Definitely. And maybe encouraged from, from what I've heard about Berman. Some of the stuff I can, I can understand, you know, because, hey, you know, alien cultures, they think differently than we do. I mean, it reinforces that fact. But, I mean, at some point, you don't need all that. Yeah, we saw the, the cat suit, obviously, on T'Pol. That was, wasn't was new for Star Trek. And that always happened. The alien dancers, I kind of look at that and think, that's that's nothing, really. We've That's a sci-fi trope, I guess. It looked great. It was very alien. I think if you made that scene now, you'd have a man and a woman. Discovery kind of does that in its um, season one finale, doesn't it? Yeah, season one. I think we would have seen uh, something more like that. But I guess, like... But the aliens were sexualized by Reed. Mayweather snaps out of it quite quick, but Reed doesn't really. Reed lingers a little too long. I mean, that happens throughout the whole show. I'm a massive fan of Reed, but that's a theme throughout the whole show, that Reed is sometimes a little creepy with how he is around women. Oh, yet Archer in his underwear, though, which is the first time we ever saw anyone in uh, in that blue, I guess, what they were in, like a vest and, a, and his underpants, as, as you guys would call them. So it, it was balanced. It was balanced. But the main one, 
You know it. The decon chamber. The decon chamber, which was a very sexed up scene, and it was shot that way. Apart from a scene in A Night in Sickbay in season two, I don't think the decon chamber was ever shot in such an overtly sexy sexy way whilst trying to talk about important dialogue. It was like a, like a heavy subject, but done by clowns. Yeah, it just, UPN must have loved it. When UPN saw that scene, when they saw that scene, and I remember it was in some of the trailers as well, so they would have marketed the show on that stuff. They're like, this is what we want. And I'm amazed they weren't forced to use the decon chamber more, actually. Yeah, I can't remember when we saw it next. I know we definitely saw it in Sleeping Dogs later in the, the season. I can't remember if we saw it before that. But the main problem I have with the decon chamber is, and maybe you can explain it to me. For me, the decon chamber makes no sense because there is an episode later on which specifically refers to the fact that the shuttle pod bay needs to be sanitized and stuff. But it doesn't make any sense to me that sometimes these guys came back contaminated in the shuttle pod bay and they have enough time to go to the decon chamber and risk contaminating. The way that I kind of understood where the decon chamber was, like it was just outside the shuttle bay. Yeah. But think about how they get out of the shuttle pods. And when they get into this episode, they're going down the steps. I don't think we often see them do it that way uh, later on, but they go down the ladders and they climb in and all that. It didn't make any sense to me that these two would come out and be the only two that would have to then go into decon, you know? Like, surely, they, surely they've touched things. They've, like, how are they cleaning this whole room down in the way they are? And how, then, do Trip and Paul only have to wipe gel on each other to do it? Because surely they're not spraying gel all over the shuttle pod bay. Maybe Enterprise has a little bit more basis in reality than we think, you know, with COVID-19 happening. And we, yeah. we probably figured out a way to quickly sanitize things. And that's how they're they're able to get the, the shuttle bay and the, the shuttle pods as Maybe well. Maybe they just needed to inject some blood bleach into their bodies yeah i will say though that i find the decon chamber interesting i thought it was an interesting idea very different to star trek but i feel it was definitely in this scene being exploited i think when it was used really well was was observer effect in season four well i thought uh, the decon chamber was was used to its best but it seemed to be whenever t'pol was in there it was being sexualized and uh yeah what do we think about enterprise's portrayal of of sex okay it was heavier towards the women, but it did seem pretty equal with how they were showing. It was stuff, there was stuff for the men, stuff for the women. Yeah, and, and you know, it's it's one of those where I think they, they realized, hey, you know, maybe we can also market towards the same age bracket with women by, you know, having shirtless trip and all that. Yeah, that's one reason I guess they would have wanted uh, Scott Bakula as well, because he was popular with that sort of demographic of women as well, because of Quantum Leap. It's a funny thing with Enterprise, because... Only some of the sexualization of it, like I can laugh it off with, with my partner when we're, when we're watching it because you kind of notice those things more on TV now and you know that they're playing things to you to try and get you to watch uh, rather than it needn't be part of the plot. It, you could argue that it, feel, it feels a little bit of a step backwards the way they showed women, particularly in this first episode, coming off a show where they just had a female captain. We're trying to make big statements with that and then immediately we've got the stuff that we've already discussed in this episode. And Do you think that's a fair... A fair view to take on it. I guess say putting myself back, you know, after after this premiere, I think that would. But since we've seen the collective whole of Enterprise, yeah, I think they wound up doing it better as the season or the series yeah, moved yeah. along. Yeah, there was only a few exceptions where it stuck out that they were uh, completely trying to titillate the audience. It's quite funny now though that those things were deliberately done for this new show. Obviously, um, UPN wanted to be a sexier network anyway. But it's funny now, like that stuff just wouldn't fly in Star Trek now. The decon the decon chamber, that scene with Trip and DePaul, that would not happen now. Like it just wouldn't uh there's a concerted effort not to not to do anything that degrades. I guess if anything we might have had a had a scene with Trip and Archer in the decon chamber. I'm sure there's a, I think last week we might have mentioned some slash fic. I think there's probably much there's probably uh lots of scenes like that out there. Uh, but yeah, I just thought sex is probably something weird. It's probably, maybe it's a, it's a whole episode one time about the portrayal of sex on Enterprise. But I thought in this episode, it's definitely there. It's, the show is definitely sexier uh, than what Voyager gave us. With seven, I mean, truthfully, what did Voyager really give us that was what they called sexy apart from seven of nine in a cat suit? They never went far with it. They couldn't really do much with Janeway just because she was the captain and they they tried to help hold the captains of yeah, yeah. To, to a higher standard. They wound up pawning Bellana off on Paris and that just kind of closed that out and so I think I think it would have been interesting to explore a little bit more with Bellana 
than than what they did. Then again, you know, is is Voyager, and they only cared about the Doctor and Seven of Nine. Yeah, yeah, they did, they did. Okay, favorite moments then. Let's talk about favorite scenes. What about like moments within scenes that really stuck out for you? Probably about my favorite moment is when uh, Archer tells to Paul, "Hey, you know, I can't ask you to to stay, but I would really appreciate it if you requested to stay." That shows how he has grown just within in this episode and been able to push his put his prejudice aside and, and accept a Vulcan on his ship. And he's very open about the fact that he needs to save face and that he can't ask. Like you said, she understands completely, you know, and I think kind of bonded already, didn't they? It's funny when you see him at the start of the episode to where they ended is completely different. I got a moment actually that sort of connects with that is when when they're having the firefight on the rooftop on Rigel 10. Archer's insistent Paul gets into the shuttle pod and she's like, no, Enterprise needs her captain. You know, she wants the weapons and she'll stay behind potentially. And I felt that was a moment where, that was the first moment where T'Pol kind of respected Archer because she'd seen that he was going to put his crew first. I guess maybe the Vulcans thought Archer was quite in it for himself a little bit. And she realized that wasn't the case. Yeah, there's some conflict later when she's about to leave. She wants to leave the Helix and Trip's having to force her to stay. But that was the first moment when I thought, I was like, oh, wow, that's a turning point for their relationship right here uh, in that moment. And I guess another favorite moment was Archer in a cap. I love it. I love Archer in a cap. Any other bits for you that you just, when you're watching it again, you're like, oh, yeah, I love that bit. I kind of kind of enjoy Reed's imitation of, of Trip there at the beginning, <laughs> which I think even by, by British standards, that'd be a terrible attempt at a Southern accent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I cringe at it sometimes. It's actually really, I think it's a funny moment, is when Archer kisses the Suliban. And obviously, obviously, her face changes to Suliban, and he's like, "That's never happened before." <laughs> and I, and I just think like it's it's a funny gosh. I mean, Trek doesn't often do innuendo in that way. And I just I just thought that was brilliant because it took the the Star Trek trope. Archer, you know, he, he kissed the the alien woman. Captain and, kisses the girl, and yeah, and he got it. And uh, she happened to be green as well, like you know, is <laughs> which is a uh, the whole thing with the Trek captains and the aliens. So that again was one of the sort of Kirk things they were. Attaching it, but that line just that's never happened before. I, I guess that's another part of the whole sex in the show up, but uh, yeah, I mean, that moment was great. I like the phase pistols. That line from Malcolm Reed is like it's mm-hmm. like iconic, I think, with Enterprise. They used to use it in I think almost every trailer. There are two settings stun and kill, you'd be best not to confuse them because that again, another Trek thing stun and kill. And this one, we're like, whoa, this is the first time they're doing this. And I mean, what about you? you go through your list, you got a list there? I don't know. Um, I can say, yeah, I think we've we've, we've covered most of everything. Okay, well, I've got a burning question for you then. I was going to have a burning question section, but then I forgot about it. But I did write a question down. In the the second scene, well, the, the moment that ended the teaser, the farmer, he shot the Klingon. Did the farmer have to shoot to kill? Because he shot to kill. He didn't kill him, but he shot to kill. He shot him in the chest, yeah? Did he have to shoot to kill? Um, the new aliens at this point. Honest, if I was in his shoes, I, I wouldn't have shot to kill. I would have shot to injure. Yep. But from his perspective, he probably felt like he had to shoot to kill. Yeah, and it could be that he's somehow gotten a hold of you know Vulcan Vulcan history texts and knows what a Vulcan hello is. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Because I was watching that and I was like, man, he didn't. I think this is, I've always thought this really, but so much happens in the episode that I move on. And it's only now because I was making notes and I was like, he really didn't need to shoot to kill. He had the weapon. He was in the drive. He was in the driving seat. Driver's seat so to speak. He could have shot him in the leg. I guess he didn't know this alien was, but aliens weren't new to, to humans. They'd met aliens. There was aliens living on Earth. Uh, we know this from, like, Home, the episode we mentioned earlier. So we know aliens are on Earth and, and stuff like that. But yeah, I just thought he didn't need to do that. And I guess with that in mind, I've always insisted in the argument for 19 years this argument's been going on. I remember from the very first time this episode aired, people were taking issue with, I think, Picard, or an episode of Next Gen anyway, I think it was Picard says that first contact with the Klingons was disastrous. I think it's next gen episode anyway. And people didn't think that this first contact was disastrous because humans and Klingons were getting along at the end and the Klingons owed, owed a favor. But actually, first contact was that moment with the farmer. And that's disastrous, no? Is that not disastrous? He shot him, almost, uh, almost killed him. And I guess in the future, 200 years later, they wouldn't know about all the stuff that Klang had in his blood for the... Uh, revealing the silver, but you know, like, yeah, they, a, a Klingon got shot, almost killed on Earth soil the first time they, they met a Klingon. For me, that is disastrous. That is completely in canon. There's no, there is no canon clash there for me. I can say from there, you know, after after the, the favors are, are returned, you kind of see how how the relationship between the Federation or what becomes the Federation and the Klingon Empire degrades over time to where they don't speak for a hundred years and then we get the Battle of the Binary Stars. 
Yeah, I definitely think that Enterprise as a whole sets up Discovery quite well with uh, with the Klingon side of things. I do think that the um, it annoys me that Discovery. I guess we'll come on to this if when we ever talk about the um, the Klingon two parter in season four. But I mean, it does annoy me slightly that Discovery has never referenced the Klingons. Uh, forget the redesign of the Klingon Mega. Discovery's never mentioned the fact that the Klingons suddenly looked Klingon again, which I guess they did say it could be about 100 years before they started looking that way again. And um, so maybe we could take it that way. Or maybe we could argue that the, those... I don't know how you get around it, really. Because obviously there was some of them... There was still some of them around um, 10 years later. The way that I kind of think of it is the ones that were affected by the Augment virus get sent to their own own world to colonize and 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 then they wound up being more of more of the shock troops that we see in the original series after that we wind up seeing you know seeing them merge together and uh by by the time undiscovered country happens they're all back to normal yeah we we get back to to them all being you know fully ridged the ones that weren't able to get their ridges back since things were better with the federation the federation sent some doctors over to do some plastic surgeries there we go we've explained it We've done it right there. It's funny, as you as we were just discussing that, I remember the controversy about the fact that Clang had the ridges. I've just remembered that there was a lot of people taking issue with the fact that he had them and that they were establishing the makeup as being what Klingons looked like. It's funny, isn't it? Like the Klingon makeup argument is one of the longest in history in Star Trek. With everything we've chatted about today, how would you sort of sum up the overall experience of watching Broken Bow? With this go-around... It just kind of cements it there as the best premiere since The Man Trap and the standard for which I've based, you know, or based Discovery's premiere and Picard's premiere and then I'll base Lower Deck's premiere and Strange New Worlds as well. For me, it's the benchmark. Everything needs to reach Broken Bow's level to be considered a good first episode of Star Trek. And this is my favorite cast from top to bottom. And so even now, like when I watch it, I feel like I'm meeting them all over again. At the same time as meeting old friends, it's a weird feeling that is going through my body. Enterprise was my Star Trek. Now I will I will happily die defending Picard, Discovery, everything that's part of the CBS All Access era, happily defend them. But Enterprise is my jam. Enterprise is the one that I will go to bat for it. I'll defend Precious Cargo in season two. I, I did enjoy it. And yeah. you know, that was before I knew I was supposed to quote unquote hate it. Same goes with, with Nemesis. I mean, I, I enjoyed that movie. It's a good film. Yeah. We said in the first episode, I think, that by the time we're done with this podcast, whenever that may be, that we will make everyone into fans of everything about Enterprise. And we will make everyone into fans of Precious Cargo. That's it, really, for Broken Bow from us. I'm sure we'll probably come back and do a watch-along of this one day, a a proper watch-along, and and break it down scene by scene more. We are back next week, Chris, to talk about the final episode. These are the voyages. Yeah, an episode that I have a love-hate relationship with. I don't know about you. I'm looking forward to finding out your thoughts on it. When I think when I first watched it, I was like, okay. When I first watched it, man, I I had a I had like one of the worst viewing experiences of it ever. I knew I knew he died, Trip. Like I knew he was going to die because spoilers were everywhere, and we were watching it. I think a few weeks behind the US, uh, so I knew that was coming. But then I was at my um, she'd become my wife and then ex-wife, but uh, it was just when we were dating. I was at her house. Watched it on TV. I was like, oh man, I was like, this sucks. And I wasn't too sure how I felt about the whole episode anyway. I didn't hate it or anything, but but then we put on CSI Miami after that because I was a big Miami fan. And we put on season three. It was the season three premiere, which happened to then kill off Speed, who was my favorite character on CSI Miami. So in the space of two hours, I had lost two of my favorite characters. I was sat there with my partner. I was, I was like, this is the worst night of my television viewing life. I've lost Trip, I've lost Enterprise, now I've lost Speed. I still remember that now. All these years later, 15 years later, I'm scarred. We're going to be joined by a guest, aren't we, next week? Yes, Amy Nelson will be joining us, formerly of Earl Grey on, on Trek FM. On 9th of September 2020, our weekly discussion will focus on the Enterprise novel by the book. This was the first original Enterprise novel following the adaptation of the Enterprise premiere episode, Broken Bow. If you'd like to be fully knowledgeable of what we discuss in our 9th of September show, then please dig out your copy of Buy the Book or visit an online retailer to purchase a copy. We look forward to our first ever book club discussion. The Expanse, a Star Trek Enterprise podcast, is produced and hosted by myself, Chris Hill, and Kyle West, and is a part of the Hollis Media Podcast Network. 
To keep up to date with all the news and updates from The Expanse, be sure to follow us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook at NX01Podcast. You can find me on Twitter at TheChrisHill and Kyle on Twitter at KyleThomasWest. To join the Holosuite Media Community Discussion Group, simply type the Nexus into the Facebook search bar and we'll see you there. Thanks for listening, and until next time, keep shirts on. This show is brought to you by Holosuite Media. Computer, list other available Holosuite Media programs. Loading Holosuite Preview Program for Blast Shield, a Star Trek Lower Decks podcast. And she starts swinging it in a ridiculously reckless way. But it's so over the top that I was laughing out loud. It's putting a smile on my face. I know you were laughing really when you first saw it. I really related to that moment. <laughs> you know I get over the top. It was, uh, I just think it gives a good idea at her. And the way they cut around it, it's so close in her face. You're like, oh my God, she's crazy. And then we get the moment where she just slices it into his leg. And it's very graphic. Oh, it's re- detail. You see the muscle, like the different muscles torn. You can like see the, the Yeah. Oh my goodness. Yes. Yeah, I think you see bone as well. Loading Hollowsweet preview program for The Janeway, a Star Trek Voyager podcast. The orangey skin makes me think of something else. Makes you think nowadays. of Donald Trump. <laughs> <laughs> and, it, it, and bad hair. Oh my god! He's Kazon. Donald Trump is Kazon. Trump is Kazon. Oh my god! I'm surprised he's not calling himself Marge Trump. <laughs> because he's not very bright either. No. It fits perfectly. I understand it all now. We've we've just been taken over by the Kazon. And we didn't even realize it. No. Oh my god. <laughs> Listeners, we've just solved the mystery of the last four years in the United States. Loading Holosuite preview program for There Are Four Questions, a Star Trek Spotlight podcast. I always thought I was special that I knew that the theme came from the end of of the original motion picture. Like, I thought nobody knew that but me. (laughs) And of course, that was dumb to think. But that was, and that was the thing that, that always really sort of stuck with me. So in getting to in getting to work on Discovery, it was, you know, really, really an amazing experience for me and an amazing thought to be able to start working in this world of this kind of narrative. But when when I talked to Alex about doing um, Picard, it was on a whole nother level of of connection for me. Computer deactivate Holosuite.